All right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in 2 Chronicles 32. If you want to turn there in your Bible, 2 Chronicles 32. Then we'll pray and we'll get started here. Lord, we thank you for your word and the freedom that we have to come together and to worship you in song and in, uh, have a moment of prayer with you, but also to study your word freely. And we pray that we never take that for granted. So we thank you for that. Help us to receive your word, everything you have for us this morning. I know that's been prayed a lot, and um, we want that, and we, we pray that every single week, but um, we really want to understand it. And these beautiful pictures in the Old Testament for us really help us understand you and our relationship with you. And so, God, I pray that we would uh, just absorb everything you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we didn't have our prayer night like we were going to Easter, and I forgot to tell everybody at the last minute, but I did, got it out. But if you came, and sorry, did you, okay, okay, good. Where were you? No. Uh, <laughs> next, tonight, we'll have prayer from uh, 7 to 8, so join us for that if you want to, uh, or if you normally do, or if you want to come for the first time, it's just a good time to get together. You don't have to pray out loud. You can just sit there, but you can if you want, so uh, we come together and just lift up things that God puts on our hearts, and um, it's just a nice time with the Lord. Today in Second uh, Chronicles 32, we pick up with Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king, and Chronicles is an, has an interesting way of portraying him compared to Second Kings, and there's several chapters in Second Kings that cover this same king. Um, that's a little more detailed, and I'll, I'll cross-reference those a little bit so we can understand that. But remember, the point of Chronicles is to show us God's perspective, God's side of things. Second Kings shows us what really happened on the ground and what it looked like from man's perspective. And so we get the theology in Second Chronicles. We get the understanding of what God wants to do. And that's really what this 32 is all about, is how God has a plan and he has purposes. And he uses the people he wants to use in those purposes, provided they're willing. Um, and they get blessed in the process. But um, it, it by no means can those people take credit for the advancement of God's kingdom in that. They're just being obedient to God's plan. God had the plan the whole time. He needed someone to walk in it. And I think that helps us understand our New Testament truth of there are many good works for us and we need to walk in them. It's up to us to walk in those good works. We may miss those good works, not walk in them, not do what God's asked us to do, but that doesn't thwart his plan at all. It just means we don't get the blessing of walking in those beautiful good works he has prepared for us. Well, Hezekiah so far has decided to walk in those good works, but he's a man and he makes mistakes along the way. But from Chronicles perspective, from heaven's view, everything went according to plan. And that's what I like. And I'm encouraged by that. Verse one, after these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come, and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, why should the king of Assyria come and find much water? Well, there's a problem there. They've been doing well. They've been obedient. Remember, uh, King Hezekiah has started a reformation in the nation of Israel. They're removing all the high places where people would worship other gods. 
taking all those other gods out of play. And there's only one place to worship and only one God to worship. For years, they had uh, been polytheists, worshiping all these other gods in hopes that maybe one of them could affect their grain crop or another one could affect this area of their life. And they were categorized that way. You know, if you were the God of, if you loved this, you could worship this God and he would or she would help you in that area. And so people were very divided and, and so on. But he took all of that away and says, no, you're going to worship the one true God only. There is only one true God. And that's who you're going to worship. So in the middle of this reformation, of course, Satan doesn't just let these things slide. There's always an attack. And we can see that in our own lives. And maybe before Christ, we did all sorts of things that pleased and gratified our flesh. And that's really what worshiping other gods does. And we don't have to have an actual shrine that we bow down to, you know, in the name of entertainment or in the name of uh, violence or in the name of whatever it is, the thing that we love, you know. Um, it, can, it can just be very subtle in our lives. But when we come to Christ, when we accept him as our Lord and Savior, and we give him our lives, we begin to see those things as kind of futile. They really don't have an impact and are actually detrimental to my relationships that I have with other people on this earth and my own life. I feel the, the consequences of those distractions is what we call them, maybe. And so we begin to remove those things from our lives, get rid of those things, and we begin to focus on the Lord and the things that are important to him. Well, Satan's not going to let that happen. He's loved your distraction up to this point. He doesn't want you worshiping God. And so he'll spur things on and get people to whisper in your ear and maybe even bring uh, problems and trials into your life to get you distracted again. Back to those things. What well, was easier? My life was easier when I wasn't so focused on the Lord. Life was simpler. I didn't have so much conviction and turmoil in my heart. There was no war within me. Well, that's because you were completely in the enemy's camp. And now that you've decided to switch camps and follow the true and living God, there's going to be a battle. And so that's normal. So we see this actually physically appearing. We see this nation returning to the Lord, and we see the nations around it saying, ah, not so fast, being stirred up by Satan. I don't, they don't care about their relationship with God. The other nations don't. Sinecarach could care less, doesn't know their God, doesn't worship their God. But I think I've said this once or twice before, anybody that can be stirred by Satan will be stirred by Satan in your life. Those that are vulnerable and open to the moving of that spirit, when you're moving forward with God, they will show up. Not because they care, not because they know, not because they have some insight into your life, but because they're being stirred by the enemy. That just happens, always. So here we see this. So their plan is, uh, let's go ahead and stop up all the water, because if we're going to be under siege, we're going to need water, and we don't want them to be supplied. So I don't know how they went about doing the springs and all, but I do know how they did the brook Kidron, which is outside of the gates of Jerusalem. And so we have some pictures for you here, if you can show that first one. This is a tunnel that they dug from the outside where the stream was all the way into uh, the city, and it would capture the water and then run it through this aqueduct, which is underground, uh, into the city. You can show the next one. It gets interesting at certain times of year, depending on how high the water is. I've walked through this tunnel when I was in Israel, and it, luckily it wasn't in this condition. The water levels were much lower, and you could walk through and be dry. But they warn you ahead of time when you walk down into the area where you can go through the tunnel, and they say, now it's going to be wet, so beware. You need to be you know, up to here, It's going to be, or, or it's going to be dry. Well, when I went, it wasn't like this, but look at that brave guy. you Because know? without that flash, 
and it, there ain't no light down there at all. And so you're in this water, and you can feel it coming up. You're like, boy, you know, I hope it doesn't come up to here at some point. Uh, so if you're claustrophobic, this is not the tourist thing for you. You'll want to bypass and just say, I believe you. I believe you. Okay, it ends up in the pool here inside the gates, and that's where uh, they would draw the water from. So we're looking at it from the other way. Uh, from the other side, I didn't get a picture of that. The water comes in and rests right here, and they would come down these long stairs. You can get the elevation problem outside. It comes underground like this, so it's got to come into the city. So you've got to walk clear down into this area here that they've carved out for you to get the water from. So they would have water here during the siege that we're talking about right now, and they built it just for this siege right here, okay? Now, don't get used to these pictures. Only once in a while are you ever going to get fun stuff like this, okay? Um, it just happened to come up, and it, and it worked out great. All right, back to the text. You can leave them up there. Kind of fun to look at, but... Um, so there they are. Let's get this water and bring it in. So they did. So they did. Now, what they're not telling us here in this chapter from 2 Kings is that first he tried to bribe them with all the gold of the temple, and he had lots of ideas of going to Egypt to make deals with them, to let them be an alliance and an allegiance with them. Again, he went to the world. He went to money. He did all these other things, but go to God, you see. And that's in 2 Kings. Now, I, don't, I shouldn't probably bring that up in Chronicles because God says in this chapter, I want you to see that he did eventually do what I asked him to do. I did give him wisdom. I did step in and intervene. And none of those things in 2 Kings worked, didn't prevent anything. They were his attempts as a man, as a king, as a leader, but in his flesh. But the spiritual things did work. Now, the reason I bring it up, whether I should or not, is... I guess I'll hear about it later when I get up to heaven, but it's because I want you to know that none of this is because of Hezekiah. None of the blessing that comes from this is from Hezekiah. It's all from God and him being obedient finally to what God called him to do. But that encourages me in the sense that you can, first of all, take no ownership in the work of God in our lives. We're obedient eventually, there were probably a lot of different things you tried in your own strength to accomplish or get over some kind of hurdle in your life or some kind of trial or tribulation or difficulty. And eventually you heard from God and eventually you did what God asked you to do. And eventually it all worked out like it was supposed to. And, and as far as the world goes, you, that's the side of the story we tell people. Oh, I was praying and God showed me to do this. Really? You're super spiritual. I know. I really am. I really am. And you, we kind of exclude the parts. Well, first I tried the credit card, and I ran out of credit card debt. And, and then I tried four other jobs, and that didn't work either. And then finally, you know, we don't tell them that funny, fleshy part, you know. But the Bible's faithful to do that. That's what I love about Scripture. Faithful to show the frailty of the people that God used. It's not a, it's not a book that hypes you up. It's not... It's not a book that says that, uh, why aren't you like these people? It tells us the honest truth, and I think that's what God's trying to get across, is you are exactly like these people. You are exactly like these people. They're not untouchable. They're not on pillars. They're not people that somehow got it, and you don't get it. They just do what we do, and God writes it down and says, isn't that great how it all worked out? Well, yeah, but... He tried to bribe them first with money from your temple. Yeah, that was ugly, you know. And he tried to join Egypt, which we told never to go back to Egypt again. And he tried to go back to Egypt. Yeah, I, I told him not to go. And then he cried out to you and you stepped in. Yeah, yeah, that's the good part, you know. 
oh, if we could just skip to the good part, right, in our lives, and we just trust the Lord, and we just trust him completely and nobody else, you know? Sometimes when I don't hear God speaking to me, or I don't hear him in the timing that I think he should be speaking to me, I begin to look at Egypt, and I begin to look at other ways. And if I just sit there and say, he'll speak when he's ready, and I'm not doing anything else till he says something to me, I think our lives would be a lot smoother, you know? We wouldn't get ourselves into such trouble sometimes. Anyway, he eventually gets it. In 2 Kings 20.20, describes this tunnel. Now, the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all his might, and how he made a pool and a tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Okay, so that's the tunnel story, and there's more about that, but that's how we bring these two scriptures together. Verse 5. And he strengthened himself, built up uh, all the wall that was broken. Remember that guy came and ripped out part of the wall, and, and it was kind of an embarrassing moment. Raised it up to the towers and built another wall outside. Also, he repaired uh, the Milo in the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. Now, we skipped over this other wall, but actually it's the thickest wall ever built they say, in the Iron Age, whatever that means. The cool thing to me was it was seven meters thick, so about 22 feet thick. And that was to go against their, you know, their battering rams. They're going to come up, they're going to start, these Assyrians are going to come in, they're going to start smashing that wall. So they just built this super thick wall, you know, 21 feet. Uh, well, it's about half this room, half this room thick, you know. That's a pretty good wall there. So he builds this thing up. I'm like, what? you know, and, the, and part of me is like, why didn't you do that to begin with? Why was the first wall not like seven feet? Well, apparently, they decided to do it later. So he builds this wall. Um, and, how, you know, how do you break through that? So the idea is we're going to have to starve them out or, or water them out. But he's got this aqueduct now, and it, it's all set. Then he sent military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square in the gate of the city, and gave them encouragement so he's going to give them this pep talk, or at least some encouragement. It's not really a pep talk, because he's going to talk about the Lord. But I want to share with you before they come, that I want you to be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitudes, uh, multitude that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an army of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. It's a promise. Those words sound, should sound pretty familiar to us. Be strong and of good courage. You'll hear that throughout Scripture. Even in the New Testament, I want you to be strong and of good courage. Jesus would tell his disciples that before the darkest time of their life and his ministry, before Easter, before the death on the cross, before the resurrection, he would tell them, this is going to happen, but I don't want you to be dismayed. I don't want you to be, I want you to be, I want you to be, have courage. I want you to have strength. I want you to trust in the God whom we serve, because although physically it looks like we've got about, oh, I don't know, a million people in here, and they brought like three million people to come fight us, I want you to know that there are more with us than with them, because they don't see things spiritually, but we do. We understand and the heavens are for us. And they're going to see that actually play out physically, not just, uh, just that idea. Oh, there's just an angel watching over you, honey. Well, I'd like to see him show up sometimes, you know. Thanks for telling me that, but I want to see it, you know. I want to experience this deliverance from God that everybody's talking about. Well, they're going to. 
they will. But he gives them this talk, and God tells us the same thing in his word as Christians. I want you to be strong and of good courage. They want you to. Now, he tells us that. We know this, right? Because we're going to need you to be strong and of good courage later on. Things are going to go south. Enemies are going to come. Difficulties are going to fly our way. And the pep talk is meant right before the game. Here we go. Here comes your opponent. Are you prepared? Well, we should be. He gives us an entire book of be strong and of good courage. And so we need to be strong and of good courage. Now, verse 9. Um, after this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem. Now they're going to start off with, not a siege, but they're going to start off with psychological warfare. They're going to try to get these people that are behind this big thick wall that have an abundance of water. They didn't expect any of that. They weren't prepared for any of that. The Assyrians weren't ready. We're going to try to talk them out of trusting in those things. It's the first thing Satan does as Christians is he comes to us and tries to convince us it'd be a lot easier if I didn't have to ram my head against your life until you finally crack. It'd be a lot easier if you just gave up. I wish you'd just walk away from him. I wish you'd just get out from under Because honestly, if, you, if we understood his perspective, Satan's perspective, he's not a bright guy. He doesn't have any new tricks. He's done the same thing from the beginning as he does here and as he does today in our lives is he tries to get us to doubt God's promises, tries to get us to doubt his word. And once we doubt his word and we pull ourselves out from under the protection of the Lord, now we're vulnerable. It's like separating a sheep from the flock and getting him away from the herd, getting him away from the shepherd. Now the wolves can do whatever they want to do with this one because he's alone. He's out there on his own. He's completely vulnerable. He has no backup. He has no one to trust in. He's just dead. He's just prey. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, the first attack from Satan on human beings Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now she takes what God has said, and she adds a little bit to it. Now, I don't know why she does that. I don't know why she adds at the very end, um, you, you can't touch it. He never said that. He says, I don't want you to eat of it. Now, for us, we're like, well, that's implied. It's implied. You know, you, you can't eat it, so therefore, obviously, you can't touch it. That's not what he said. Pick it. Look at it. Stare at it all you want. I mean, you probably shouldn't be close to that anyway, but he never gave us orders. Not, there's no fence around this tree. The only command they had from God is to not eat of it. But she adds to it, you're not supposed to touch it either. And we can do that. We can do that with God's word. And I think it's detrimental to our walk with the Lord. When we add a little bit to it for protection, for our own sake, you know, God says, I'm not supposed to do that. Therefore, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And you shouldn't do this. Well, now I'm adding my word to God's word and it messes things up. It really does. It makes it, it makes it less important. It makes it less pure when we get into trouble. Anyway, she, that's her response to him. He says, we're going to die if we touch it. No, you're not going to die if you touch it. You're going to die if you eat it. That's it. That's not what she says. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. 
So not only has he called God a liar at this point, he says that God is doing it with malice. He's got something in his heart against you. He's telling you you can't do this, not because it's wise or because it's good for you, because he loves you. He's telling you that because he's jealous. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to ascend. He doesn't want you to rise above. He wants you to stay below him. He wants you to be his servant, his, you know. And so now she's looking at this fruit. She's standing around it. She's thinking about it. She's wondering if she should touch it. Maybe she will. Maybe she's going to eat it now. She's got this battle going in her mind. He's gotten into her. She shouldn't even be talking to him. Shouldn't even be having the conversation with him. And I'm not saying that her faith in God shouldn't be able to stand up to a conversation with Satan. I'm just saying he warns us to not even have anything to do with this guy and to keep Jesus in between us and Satan. I don't want to do battle with Satan. I want Jesus to do battle with Satan on my behalf, but I am not strong enough. Even Michael the archangel says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. He doesn't even try to, and Michael's way stronger than us, but he doesn't even try to do direct battle with him. He says, the Lord rebuke you. You know, he keeps Jesus in. I don't know what makes me think that I can do it. Just stop talking to him. Stop listening to him. You're not going to die. You're going to be like God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of it and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And, and thus the Messiah needed to come at that point. We needed a Savior from our sins. We're now corrupted. We cannot, we cannot get to heaven at this point. Nobody can. And so he sent his son Jesus, and that's where this starts. The, the conversation's the same. What we're going to read here from Snickrab's little goofs, his little servants here to Jerusalem, look what they say to him. They said this to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Snickrab, king of Assyria, In what do you trust? that you remain under siege in Jerusalem. Look at you. You're completely surrounded. Who is it that you're trusting in? What is it that you're trusting in? They don't have good doctrine. The enemy never has good doctrine, nor do they understand what's going on. And you can see their ignorance in their statements. Every time I see a coexist sticker on the back of somebody's car, I think of, oh, Seneca Reb. In fact, I'm going to start saying it out loud now to my kids. It'll be like slug bug when you were a kid. I'm going to see that coexist. Snickerab, maybe I'll, I don't know if I'll punch him or, you know, but we'll slug each other. And what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine, by thirst, saying the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his, God's, high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem saying, you shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it? See, he's under the impression that you guys have totally offended your God by taking out all these places of worship, all these, all these high places. He doesn't understand. He's completely ignorant of what's truly needed or required by God to worship him. That there's one place. He doesn't know anything about doctrine. He doesn't know the faith at all. It's impossible for all these religions to coexist. They're diametrically opposed to one another. 
This whole, why can't we just get along? I can't wait for us to all just get back together again. Our country's so divided. Do you understand why we're divided? They're not compatible. The ideas don't go together. They can't coexist. I want freedom and I want liberty. Not so fast. <laughs> you can have limited freedom and you can have limited liberty. Then we have neither. It's not, we can't get along in this area. There is no, you can't have Jesus and Satan in your life. You can't have this and that. There is no room for darkness and light. It doesn't exist. It's very important. But the humanist today, or Sennacherib back here, who doesn't understand and doesn't care about any of them, because later on he's going to say, and we defeated all these other nations and all their gods. In other words, I have zero respect for any god or any religion anywhere in the world. I'm just trying to get you guys out. I'm just getting you to come on out, to give up. Quit clinging to your god. Your religion. Quit clinging to it. When I hear those words come out of someone's mouth, today, Sennacherib. It's the same spirit. It's the same heart. I don't know that they know it. They probably Nobody ever says, <laughs> I'm going to be the devil today. Nobody thinks that way. But anybody that can be stirred by Satan will be stirred by Satan. When I hear things that come out of Sennacherib's mouth, and I hear the same thing later, 2,000 plus well, actually, probably 3,000 plus years later now, coming out of a modern-day politician's mouth, quit clinging to your religion. Sennacherib. And, and who's behind Sennacherib? I don't have to know. I don't have to prove it. I don't have to. I just, I'm hearing the same thing, and it is repulsive to me now as it was to these guys then. It's the same thing. I'm not going to deny my God. I will cling to him. And in fact, I'm going to get even closer to him now that you've asked me not to get closer to him because he is the only one that's keeping you from me. Listen for those things. The same thing comes out. Satan has no new tricks. He told Eve, you're going to be fine. Doubt God's word. Sennacherib, you're going to be fine. Don't trust in that God. And we hear the same thing today. You're going to be fine. If we could just get rid of all the religions of the world, the world would be a much better place. It's the same, same voice, different vocal cords. He says, you're going to have to worship before one God or one altar. Do you not know that I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their hand out of my hand, their lands out of my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my father utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand? That your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this, and do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Wow. Well, he's going to find out. He's going to find out. And we don't see this. I, I, I say this all the time. I, I, I mean, I think we all do. Oh, God, get him. This is great. You hear what they said about you? Go get him. He doesn't always go get him, though. He doesn't. 
Because he's doing something else sometimes. I'm like, oh, man, he said something bad about you. Get him, you know. Mm -mm. This time he does. And the reason I say all that is because I don't want you to walk out of this place saying, oh, man, God's going to get all my enemies tomorrow. He might. Or he might be doing something bigger. He might be working something else out. He might be working in other people's lives, too. He might be testing your faith. He might be trying to see where you're going to go or what you're going to do or how you're going to rely on him. He might be doing all that. I don't know. But sometimes he steps in and does these amazing things like he's going to do to this guy. Furthermore, his servant spoke against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people out of my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. Then they called out with a loud voice in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them and trouble them that they might take the city. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the other people of the earth, the work of men's hands. That's the mistake. You're talking about all these other gods. What's the difference? Because those other gods, all other gods on the face of the earth, let me say it again, every other religion on the face of the earth is the work of man's hands. They've created him. It comes from the heart of man. They've made their gods. The God of Christianity is different in every way because he is the God who created the heavens and the earth and he is the true and living God. Well, they all say that. Okay. I don't know what to tell you. Find out, find out, see if it makes sense to you. Work it out in your mind. I, I always assume there's someone in the crowd is trying to make sense of it all, or maybe try God on for sight, or maybe I've tried all these others and they've done nothing for me. I think I'm going to try this one on. I don't know if that'll work for you. God wants you to trust in him. He wants you to believe in him. And those who seek him must believe in him first. You can't find God if you don't believe that he is. I don't want you to believe me. I don't want you to believe any denomination. I don't want you to believe any book. You are going to meet and encounter, if you want to, a true and living God, a person who will talk to you, who will interact with you, who will hear your prayers, who will do the thing, and you won't have to manipulate anything. It just, it'll just happen if that's what you want. But you have to seek the Lord. You have to do that. You have to desire him in your life. He's not one to, I mean, he's done amazing things and miracles are all around us. You can see it. And he wants you to seek him because you see it, because you see him, you see his fingerprints, you see his design, you see, you see it's obvious. But to try him on like you tried on Buddhism or because you tried on Islam or because you tried on Hinduism, I don't know. Maybe. I guess I don't want to speak on behalf of God. Maybe he'll step in and do something miraculous. You, you need to understand that. Research those if you have to and find out where they started and how they got going. Every one of those leaders that ever started those religions who died, died in loneliness and hopelessness. You can read their quotes of their last dying words. Jesus' last words were, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Completely different from all of them. Anyway, he's trying to gin up trouble inside the gates. Trying to get them to take their king Hezekiah. If I can just get these people to listen to me on the wall and to throw their king over the wall, they'll open the gates for me. I got it. I'm in. We don't have to 
use battering rams. We don't have to take any more time and starve them out. This will all just happen. Now, they wrote these letters. They spoke to the people. They spoke against God with the work of their hands. Now, because of this, Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried out to heaven. Then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader, and captain in the, king, in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned shamefaced to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, so apparently there is one God that he worships. I don't know. We'll read about it here in a minute. Some of his own offspring, his own kids, struck him down with the sword there. Boastful words, prideful words. You're God, you're God, you're God. Can't do any of this, can't do it. Well, here's the story. Second Kings chapter 19. A brief portion of it, verse 35. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at where? Nineveh. We know Nineveh, don't we? Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisrach, his god, there's the name for you, that his sons, Adremelech and uh, Sherezer, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Asarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. It's just some interesting 183,000, 185,000 people. They went to bed thinking, I don't know what we're going to do. Oh, God, oh, God, they got up. You know, oh, what's that smell, you know? Yeah, who's going to clean that mess up? 185,000. Now, that isn't a beautiful thing at all. God doesn't desire the death of the wicked at all. He doesn't. But this is a big deal. This is a point. This is a battle. This is a, this is a blessing. The nation of Israel is looking over their wall that they've trusted in God and trusted in their leader who's led them in this reformation. And they say, oh my goodness. For some of the people in Israel, some of the people in Jerusalem, this is maybe the first time they said, wow, he's real. But this doesn't keep them from next, the next chapter. Verse 33, where they completely walk away from God next week. And, and he lasts for what, 55 years, I think. He's the longest, oldest king in the history of Israel. And he's evil and wicked. Now, I don't know how you go from this chapter 32 and seeing this that we just read. But it just goes to show you that even today, and I hope you understand this in your walk, just because God steps into my life and does a marvelous, miraculous work, and I see an angel come in and completely clear up one of the biggest problems of my life, it doesn't mean I'm going to be faithful tomorrow. It just doesn't. I don't go. We can't walk by those situation after situation. Well, I, you know, what have you done for me lately, God? Kind of attitude as a Christian. No, I, I worship and serve the true and living God because he defeated the enemy, my enemy, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, at the cross, and all my sins have been forgiven. 
Now, if he never steps in and kills 185,000 of my enemies in my life, if he never provides water, if he never keeps chains off of my wrist, if he never does anything else for me, he's worthy of my worship. He's worthy of my complete obedience. This is nothing. This is a blip in time. This is a story. This story is supposed to point us to the fact that what he's going to do for us through his Messiah, it's about a thousand years from now, from this story that Jesus comes, is going to be complete victory for mankind. That when God wants to step in and do complete victory, when he wants to step in and he sends one angel for 185,000 men. And that doesn't mean that that was the limit of that one angel. Like he was tired. I mean, maybe he was. He's like, okay, send somebody else. I've done 185,000. I'm done. That means he can do whatever he wants for as often as he wants, for as long as he wants. So he does. He steps in and it does a miraculous salvation for them. So he's dead. The enemy's dead. In those days, Hezekiah was sick. And near death, and he prayed to the Lord. That's a big skip here. <laughs> if you read Second Kings, you'll figure out what that is. But anyway, we're skipping over. He's sick, and he's near death, and prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him, and, and he gave him a sign. So he's asking for his life. I don't want to die. It's too soon. I don't want to live. Please. That says, all right. How do I, how do I, I'm going to, I'm going to heal you. How, how am I going to know you're going to heal me? He goes, well, you tell me what kind of sign do you want? I can make the sundial, you know, the clock go forward 10 degrees, or I can make it go backwards 10 degrees. What, what would prove to you that I'm really going to do what I said I'm going to do, which is embarrassing in and of itself, that he would have to do something to show that he's going to be faithful to his word. But nevertheless, God's willing to do it. He says, well, it's easy if it goes down 10 degrees, make it go backwards. I mean, if you can make the you know, earth rotate the wrong direction, that would be great. I would love that. And so he does. He makes it go back 10 degrees. It's in uh, 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 12 through 19. It says this, At that time, Baradak and Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent letters and presents to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasuries. I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead. Don't read that yet. Okay, wait. Anyway, God heals him and gives him 15 more years. I'll give you 15 more years. Now, I don't know if he cried again after 15 years. Probably didn't. But he blows it during these 15 years. And this is the blowing it right here. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him for his heart was lifted up. He got prideful. He began to think all the things that were happening in Israel and all the wealth and all the riches that he had and all the success that he had was from himself. And so he got lifted up in his heart. Therefore, the wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. He and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them during the days of Hezekiah. But as soon as he's dead, 15 years later, that's when the wrath comes. And that's what we see in chapter 33. I got prideful. The whole nation began to think that it was because of capitalism. I mean, that because it had something to do with patriotism. That it had something to do with us. We made a lot of mistakes in our country. A lot of mistakes. We fixed a lot of mistakes too, but only 
only because of God's intervention, only because we obeyed God, only because we read his word and applied it to our lives, only not because we got some great brainstorming think tank together and we decided to fix the world through whatever it is that, no. If we begin to embrace in our own prideful hearts that it has something to do with us and has nothing to do with God, we fall into the same problems. That's a hard thing to teach today. Because as much as I love our country, and as much as I want our country to continue on the path that it was going and isn't going anymore, it was never because of any other reason but our God. And as Christians, we need to know that and understand that. Only because of Jesus, only because of our devotion to him, only because we trusted in him. And when we look at the history of our nation, we could say, wow, and we'll tell everybody the good parts, don't we? Uh, remember that? Remember that? Remember that? Remember that? Yeah. And you remember that? And you remember that? You remember that? We don't talk about that, you know. No, it's the Lord. God is shining upon us and smiling upon us and blessing us because of our obedience to him. And if we think that we can continue this blessing without him and in our own strength and patriotism and pride, we're going to run into the exact same problem that these folks are going to fall into. He gave him 15 years. Well, here's what happens. During that 15 years, now we can read 2 Kings 20, verses 12 through 19. Some emissaries came from Babylon. They sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for they heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah was attentive to them. This is Babylon. Attentive to Babylon. The Babylon's a sneaky group of folks, and they still are today. Babylon can be anything in our lives. Well, yeah, and he showed them the house and his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, all his armory, all that was found among his treasuries. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. He showed the enemy everything. It's none of the enemy's business. Man, we've got to start leading more private lives. We have to start leading more, leading more private lives. I'd encourage you, lead a more private life. If you've got problems between your husband, between the husband and spouse or whatever, work on it, of course. Bring it to the Lord, of course. Seek a counselor or somebody that you trust that loves Jesus, fine. But don't air it all over the place. I don't know what's going on with him. He's a worthless Facebook. Thanks. You don't think that's going to be hard to get over? Oh, yeah, well, she was like this, Facebook, you know. When we're ready for divorce, will you counsel us? <laughs> How do you undo that? You've lit a fire that has burnt everything. You can't unring that bell, you know. And that goes with everything in our lives. This guy, just be quiet and humble and give God the glory and let that be enough that's said, you know. Let that be where it's supposed to be. Then Isaiah the prophet went to the king of Hezekiah and said, What did these men say, and where did they come from or come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came from afar, from a far country, from Babylon. He says, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They've seen all. I mean, he sounds like a, it's a little kid, doesn't he? Isaiah the prophet's coming. Who are those guys? They were from Babylon. What did you show them? Everything? <laughs> you know? Really? 
Can you not feel the rebuke coming from Isaiah? You'd think he'd be a little more humble. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the words of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Just kind of, here's the gravity of the situation. Look at his response. And now you know why I make fun of him a little bit. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? I mean, wow. But I'm going to be okay, right? Well, yeah. I mean, that was the promise God gave you. But your kids are going to be... <laughs> it's a good word from the Lord there. No, it's not, buddy. That's a terrible word from the Lord. That's a rebuke from God. Fine, you're going to be fine. Great, you're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. Your kids are ruined. The nation's ruined, you know? Own it. Do something about it, for goodness sake. I don't know. Act. He doesn't. Verse 27, Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. He made himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of desirable items. Storehouses for all the harvest of grain, wine, and oil. Stalls for all kinds of livestock and folds for flocks. Moreover, he provided cities for himself and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance. For God had given him very much property. That's just what happens. You're being obedient to God. There it is. But it doesn't mean you can take credit for that. This same Hezekiah also stopped the water outlet of Upper Gihon and brought the water by tunnel, which we've looked at, to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all his works. However, regarding the ambassadors of the prince of Babylon, which we just read about, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him, and I believe that's Hezekiah, in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. Now, I think that's Hezekiah. There's a debate on that. And I don't know who else it would be. Maybe he wanted to see who was in Babylon's heart. I think we know. But it's interesting that he writes this, and I'm going to teach it that way. You can throw it out if you want because it is debatable. But that it is Hezekiah and that God says, what will you do without my counsel? What will you do without my intervention? And this is what he does. He lets all of Babylon into his life. He throws all of his countrymen under the bus without God in his life. And there's a humbling thing to read for me, and it should be for all of us, that without God in our lives, we are not all that. I think I can coast pretty good. I think I'm okay. I think I've got a good head on my shoulders. I think I can navigate. And that's the same thing as saying, but it's going to be okay for me, right? It's the same thing Hezekiah said. No, I need to do what God wants me to do in my life. It may not make sense for my life or for the moment, but it's what God wants me to do. I have to trust him that maybe he's thinking generations ahead. Maybe he wants my kids to walk with the Lord. Maybe they're going to go astray. Maybe they are going astray. And because I haven't been obedient to God, there they go. But at least I think I'm okay. I think I'm saved. I don't know about them. That's a choice they're going to have to make. But did we give them opportunity? Did we make a place for them? Did we... Lead them to the Lord. Were we the spiritual leaders of our house? Or did we just kind of let them do it? And Well, she'll take care of that. She'll take care of that. That's our responsibility. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, indeed, they're written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos. 
and in the book of the king of, of Judah and Israel. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. Then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. He's 12 years old when he takes over, and it's not going to be good. Now, we're going to have communion. It'll take some time to have some communion. And I want to remind you while the guys are handing this out, that on Mondays from 1 to 8 p.m., we have the church open with open communion set up in the back. So if you feel like you need to come and spend time with the Lord and have some communion, you're welcome to do that. You're welcome to come do that. And so I say that for the folks watching online too that are, are out there and maybe throughout the Monday sometime during, I mean, seven hours. We gave you seven hours. If that's a, a blessing to you, come on in. The, the, the table will be set and you can come grab. Thank you. And it'll be ready for you. And then we'll, we'll clean it up around, we'll, we'll clean it up in the morning, but we'll lock the doors around eight o'clock. So anyway, that's going to be available for you and has been for weeks, but we'll continue to do that. As we take this bread and this cup, though, in our hands, we're reminded of the Lord's Supper and the night that he was betrayed. Um, that that night he took that bread that was at that table and he broke it and he gave thanks to God. And he passed it out to his disciples. He said, I want you to take and eat. This body represents, or this bread represents my broken body for you on the cross. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup that they had and he passed it around. He said, take and drink. This is the, represents the cup of the new covenant of my blood that's going to be shed for you, that was shed for you from the foundations of the earth, but they didn't know it. As often as you drink this, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. You want them to remember the sacrifice of the cross and what was accomplished at the cross, the forgiveness that was given, the mercy, our entrance into heaven, the complete defeat of our enemy. It's all happened at the cross. It's all there. And that's why we worship. And that's why we sing songs. And that's why we study God's word and we read it. And, and that's why we can trust that if there's anything else he has to say to us pertaining to our life, it's trustworthy. Because he's done the greatest deed he ever needed to do and, or could do. And he still wants to help us with the smaller things in our lives. And I can trust him with that. I may not understand why he wants me to do this or what the timing is on this and why now and not then, or why am I not hearing from you? But God is working something out and I can trust his voice and his voice only. And he wanted his disciples to do that. And he wants to remind us of that this morning. And so this morning, as we all sit together as a, as the body of Christ, as the church, we want to do this uh, together. We've all, they, they made this little unleavened loaf and they've divided it up for us ahead of time. Normally we'd pass it around and share and, and all that. I mean, that's how they did it anyway, but for speed, we just cut it up for you. But it all came from one loaf and this all came from one jug of Welch's grape juice, by the way. Um, that's not even Welch's, is it? What'd you buy, Toby? Some off-brand? Cheap. We're cheap. No. It all came from the same place. It came from the ground. It came from the grapes. Okay, let's, let's leave it at that. Probably bottled in the same place as well. It's just all right. But to remind ourselves that we're one body and we take and eat and we're, we're united with Christ as he was raised from the dead last week. And we remember that. So will we be, we will rise when he rose, we rose and we're going to go to heaven with him. We're going to be there and be encouraged by that. Now that's exciting. But if you're not a believer this morning, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus, that is not your end. That isn't applied to you. The, you didn't rise with Christ. You are still dead in your sins. And you need to accept Christ. In order to enjoy this meal that we're having together with the Lord, 
you've got to accept Christ. That's why Paul tells us in, in, to the Corinthians, like he's writing to the Corinthians, but he tells us the same message. Don't eat and drink judgment to yourself when you do this. I want you to eat and drink life. I want you to know that you're saved. I want you to know that you have hope. And so he says, judge yourselves, that you might not be judged. And so this morning before you eat, if you're an unbeliever, judge yourself this morning. Do you need Christ? Are you a sinner that's separated from God? Have you not walked in his counsel? Are you not obeying him? Have you lived your own life and were you the captain of your own ship? Maybe this morning's the day that ends. And you give over that to him. And you're now a passenger of your life. And you let him lead and guide you. And you let him direct you. And you give your whole life to him this morning. Now you can eat and drink in a worthy manner. Understanding what this means. That my sins separated me from God. But Christ's death on the cross made that up for me. He was the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. And I've applied that to my heart, to my life. And this morning I'm his. It's a good thing. That's a good thing. And now you can eat with us as believers, as a believer. Lord, we thank you for this bread. We thank you for this cup. That you've given us this reminder because you knew we would need it. We're reminded this morning of your broken body and of your shed blood. That you were the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that because of that sacrifice, because you rose from the dead, it was an accepted sacrifice from the Father. And so, Lord, we know that our sins are paid for because you rose from the dead. We know that death was defeated. We know that our end is not the end of all mankind. Our end is different. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord now. And so, we thank you for that. Whenever that day comes, we know that we have hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord, it's been a special morning for us. Beautiful weather. Beautiful word. Beautiful time of communion with you. You're beautiful. We thank you for your love for us, your care for us, your heart for us. Thank you for sharing with us the honor, in, in honest black and white, this man, Hezekiah. And uh, we're a lot like him, Lord. Forgive us when we try to do things on our own when we don't listen to your counsel, when we don't even ask you. We pray that that would be few and far between in our lives. That we would constantly seek you, trust you, and only want to hear your voice, and only want to obey your voice. And we know that's the best thing for our lives. Lord, bless these folks as they go today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good morning, guys.